Health Outreach is a student-run, registered charity based on the campus of Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Our goal is to facilitate needs-based peer-to-peer health discussions on a local, national, and international scale. This podcast is for those who are interested in health, global health, global development, ethical engagement, and education. Join us and our special guests bi-weekly as we chat about discussions surrounding all these topics and more. We would like to thank the CFRC 101.9 and the Queen's University Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences for this collaboration. Additionally, we'd like to acknowledge that Queen's University is situated on traditional Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee territory. We're so grateful to be able to live, learn, and work on these lands. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of QH On Air. Today we were joined by Dr. Lawford, who is an Aboriginal midwife and a registered midwife in Ontario. Her research focuses on the provision of paternity care for those who live on reserve and understanding the barriers to equitable reproductive health services. Currently, she's a co-investigator on a Status of Women Canada research project entitled Empowering Women Leaders in Health, Healthcare, Health Sciences, and Indigenous Health. Dr. Lawford is the lead on Indigenous Health and purposely draws attention to Indigenous women and Two-Spirit Leaders in Health. Thank you so much for joining us today and taking time out of your busy schedule. We really appreciate it. Um, Anything for students. <laughs> I would want to preface by saying that we understand that the answers to like the first question or lots of them can be super complex and we could dedicate hours to talking about um, different topics that we're going to talk about. Um, but you know, in the best way you can, um, I guess the first question is about, um, could we chat a little bit about why Indigenous populations do experience poor health outcomes um, compared to, you know, other populations in Canada? And maybe, you know, what your opinion is on um, this matter and what the biggest barriers are. Okay, for sure. So... Yeah, this question is really interesting. The question is, why do Indigenous populations experience poor health outcomes compared to their counterparts? So one thing I'm going to talk about is how um, those who work in health, for example, don't even think that Indigenous people are people. They actually refer to Indigenous people as populations. And I do understand that this is the language of pop health. However, I think that looking at broad solutions for very specific problems really does dehumanize Indigenous people. So this is what we're being taught at um, health sciences, health studies, um, all the um, healthcare provider programs, education programs are based on white supremacy. So why do Indigenous people have poor health outcomes when measured by Western biomedical markers is because the, the template upon which those are built are based on white supremacy. So the white male being the, epi- the epitome of health. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I mean, look no further than Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He is the epitome of white supremacy. Um, and I don't know that personally, the way that he was premised and positioned within mainstream media was as a pinnacle of, of achievements. Um, 
and that's this is not a critique about him, although I personally could. It's about the way that we as a Western world position health. It is no wonder that Indigenous people have lower health outcomes when the goal of this nation state has been and always will be until there's substantial changes, the civilization and assimilation of Indigenous peoples into um, generic Canadian identities. And this is the, my understanding of necropower is that it is the power of the state to determine who lives and who dies. There are people in this country, indigenous communities who don't have clean drinking water because Canada refuses through its powers and including financial distribution of wealth to indigenous populations. If you are rich in this country, it is at the cost of indigenous peoples. It is white supremacy that has allowed this government, all governments, I don't care what letter you are, big C, little C, big L, little L, you are part of the problem because you have stolen land from indigenous peoples. Our wealth is stolen by white supremacy or grounded and founded in white supremacy. There is no way Indigenous people can be healthy in terms of our own self-defined um, ideas of health and wellness without our land, without clean water, without clean air. And one of the goals of colonization, which is underpinned by white supremacy in this country, is that you steal our land and you steal our waters and you commodify these things to the extent that the ex Indigenous peoples are excluded from their, the lands on which they've lived for over 100,000 years. So. Why do Indigenous peoples experience poorer health outcomes? Because you stole it, you stole our health. But Indigenous people had their ways of health and wellness and they had their, their caregivers, you know, their own health workforce. Um, there's no way, I mean, obviously they had to um, have these knowledges and people skilled in those knowledges to mm -hmm. exist for a hundred thousand years. I mean, we're, we're approaching some extraordinary unreversible climate change yeah. Because of this machine of westernizing the global, the globalization and westernizing. So it was the Canadian government made our healthcare providers, Indigenous healthcare providers, and our medicines illegal. So we could go to jail, we could lose our children for practicing our ways. Wow. And these are substantive, these are very substantive issues that have yet to be remedied. Where are Indigenous midwives practicing? Under exemptions in some provinces and territories, but largely unrecognized by the federal government. So while you have certain ministers of health or certain ministers saying, um, like I had, what's her name? Car Carolyn Bennett tell me that she loves midwives and she really supports it. Well, come on, you're the minister of, what is she the minister of? Indian affairs? I can't even keep track. Um, what are they doing? What are they doing to actually um, change things in a way that they also support? So it's all just, it's like these, I can't trust them. Like if you support midwives and indigenous midwives, where are they? If you support indigenous ways, how come we can't work in a hospital? How come we're not allowed in a hospital as a care provider? Like, but at the same time, taking our knowledge of medicine and commercializing it and commodifying it within the pharmaceutical industry. Like it's astounding yeah. the, the amount of intellectual theft 
of our knowledges and our um, technologies for the benefit of this, but not at all acknowledging or we're not benefiting from it. Mm-hmm. And that is just, your people are part of a system, but the system is about extraction. It's about commodification and colonialism, of course, underpinned by white supremacy. So only white people or white systems can ever hold the truth, the knowledge of health and wellness. Just so much of this, for example, pharmaceuticals coming from indigenous knowledge systems. Yeah, I think that's super powerful. I know one statement that kind of struck me was at the end of the first question, you said health was stolen from indigenous peoples in Canada. And that kind of example ties really nicely into that statement and just provides like kind of a working example of that and shows us that um, these things and this stealing and this act of stealing is still ongoing to this day. Yeah. So why, what are healthcare providers doing? What do we see happening at Queens to make a remedy? For example, I mean, we're at Queens. Let's talk about where we are. And it's not to um, pick on people, but it's to say, really, show us what you're doing. Show us how you're extending the rafters. Show us how you're implementing um, the calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Show us how you're ensuring that the healthcare training that we have as students is inclusive yeah. and not replicate you know, knowledges that come, that are not that old in this country. I mean, Canada is a country barely 150 years old. Yeah. Like, let me do some math here. That's 0.15% of the time that Indigenous people using a modest 100,000 years have been on this land, figuring out how to live in health and wellness. And yet Western knowledge is really taking up all the space of health knowledge. And I don't think that's serving anyone. Right. I really don't think it is. Yeah. So would you say it's also about just allowing Indigenous people to practice the medicine their way as well? So providing the space and the opportunity for that and not taking that away. Do you think that that could be part of the solution? It could be. And I'm wondering, like, I'm, I'm actually grow tired. Um, and it's... <sighs> It's hard on me to keep having these conversations. I've been thinking about and talking about these conversations for 20 years and I'll keep talking about them, but I can't be the only one. I need your help. Yeah. Literally young people with privilege, with a position, with the power, with platform, with the space, with the voice to, to also advocate for care services that actually are give attention to the white supremacy and challenge it. I need students. I need you all to ask questions. Why do we keep learning the same stuff over and over again, but not understanding, for example, positions of power, um, of nurses, of physicians, of midwives? Why are we not critically examining our own ways that we are replicating white supremacy in our care system? And I say care systems, not just healthcare, but also in housing, in land development, in clearing of land for an Amazon store. Right. Yeah. That land is only valuable if you can, you can grow on it. It's not valuable for the plants and animals and birds as a wetland. I know I think that's happening in Toronto area, North of Toronto. We are the most selfish beings on this entire earth and we are so intellectually brilliant 
And what have we done with that? We've hurt so many people. We've committed genocide. We are still committing genocide in this country through forced and coerced sterilization. We are using our knowledge in such destructive ways. Like we really need each other. And I, that's why I always give space to students because I need you. I need you indigenous people. We need you so much because we wanna give you the platform, the power, the space to start asking questions and making changes. I fear that the commercialization of our knowledge and our skills has led us to become blind to the, to the wealth because of the wealth that it can achieve. But is it really a satisfying job knowing that everyone, for example, in my field of uh, maternity care, so many people don't trust obstetricians and they have all these horror stories of their care with them. Yet at the end of the day, they can perform these life-saving surgeries. What is going on when we don't care for each other, respect each other, or even love each other? What have we become as humanity? Mm -hmm. yeah. And I just wanted to say before, you know, this whole conversation and in what you were saying, you've had these conversations for 20 years or more and how exhausting that must be and how hard that must be to just express, you know, the um, history behind everything and, and what's going, what is wrong with, you know, what we're doing and maybe seeing no change, maybe seeing little change. Um, like, I just can't imagine how exhausting that is. And I think I just wanted to say that. And, you know, again, thank you for joining us because I think that's as, myself individually um i've just i've all i wanted to do is keep learning and i know it must be hard for you to teach people over and over and um to one more time um you know we talked about this in our first meeting but one more time talk about how if you could explain to the audience um how does historical and contemporary colonialism still impact indigenous people today? So for example, the residential schools, 60 scoop, racism in the healthcare today. And um, you did touch on how in our healthcare system today, it, it does still impact just by, you know, an everyday life. Um, and maybe you could touch on intergenerational trauma because that was something I, I hadn't heard of until a year ago. And I think it's so important for everyone to know. Um, and if you could, you know, in the best way you can explain so, one more time. Yeah, I'm happy to do that with you. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, so when Canada was formed in 1870, or sorry, 1867, a few years later in 1876, like I wasn't even alive then, haha. -ha, <laughs> um, the government of Canada formed the Indian Act and the Indian Act was brought about into one act, all of the little pieces of legislation that existed prior to Confederation. And that Indian Act regulates every part of someone's life who is a status Indian in this country. 1876, guess where that legislation is today? It still exists. It still exists almost completely unchanged. 
almost completely unchanged. And this is words from the federal government itself. So how could we expect as a country or as people's part of a country when the governance system hasn't changed at all and is fact built on by built on um, these ideas of white supremacy, colonization, assimilation and civilization. So, okay, so we don't have Indian residential schools. So Indian residential schools were, ma were made law, I believe in 1922 through the power of the Indian Act. <clears throat> the last Indian residential school closed in 1996. So at that time I was 16. Wow. Well, I'm not telling the truth there. I was 26. I was 26 years old when the last Indian residential school went closed and my cousin actually went to that school. Wow. So it's not that long ago. Yeah. So you're looking at people who, who, so, okay, so they're closed. So where do young people go to school then that live on reserve, for example? They sometimes have to leave their homes to go to get high school education because there's nothing in the community because again, because of that Indian Act and the way things are laid out in the constitution, this falls under federal responsibility. When's the last time you saw a federal um, high school? We only see per, um, private or provincial or territorial. Right. So they don't provide care, um, education. They're underfunding schools all the time. This, I mean, look at the work of Cindy Blackstock. Um, a First Nations Caring Society is the website. You can look that up again, Cindy Blackstock. The government of Canada knows that they're not doing these things and what's their solution? They take people to court. People have to be taken to court. So if you want anything to change, you have, they just don't do this. And this is where you have the goodness of let's say someone like Carolyn Bennett who says she agrees with midwives. In fact, as a physician herself, she was trained with midwives but yet she doesn't seem to support midwives in this country, not in any tangible material way as a minister. So what's going on there? So yes, we don't have um, Indian residential schools. However, there are residential schools, for example, in um, Sulaco where people send their kids for high school. There still are residential schools. Mm -hmm. What about um, the 60 school, which is another federal um, initiative brought on to take Indian children. In fact, you could buy an Indian child for $3 and adopt them out of the family, out of the community on purpose as another way of um, civilizing these savages into a person that could be assimilated into the Canadian population. This is the words they use. Yeah, I'm, I'm giving a little eye twitch because it's very hard for me. This is what people still think about. I gave a talk in Kingston and I was talking about the exclusion of our people's knowledges in healthcare system. And I tried to give an example of there being, you know, there's more, I think at the time there was more deans of medicine in this country, the history of this country named Dave than there have ever been women deans of medicine. And some old white man stood up and yelled at me and said, that's because they're not qualified. You think white supremacy is protecting white women? It's not. It's about white men. It's about patriarchy. And I know I sound like, um, like a crazy old women's studies professor and I don't care. It's the truth. Mm -hmm. 
why look at our own governance system at Queens. How many female chancellors have we had? How many female of any color, of any um, sexuality? How many of those have we had that as a principal? Look at all the positions. This is a white institution that's dominated by um, patriarchy. It existed prior to this country. Of course, it's still founded. Nothing's changed. So this question, how does it in, impact Indigenous people today? These events, are they're still ongoing. Nothing's changed. The legislation is exactly the same. They're just choosing not to enforce it. Wow. Women are still devalued by the Indian owned. Yes, there has been some legislation and changes to it, but largely unchanged. How is it that white women could become a status Indian, but not even in? So if a white woman married an Indian man, she would become status Indian. If an Indian woman married a white man, she lost her status. And who gets to hold and continue ideas of indigeneity? even though our people, so many of them were matriarchal and followed the lineages of women. Has anything changed? How many indigenous students do you have? How many indigenous professors have you ever been taught by? This is a serious question though. Yeah, I think yeah. the other thing about, I guess this is more a specific thing of being in the space of the academy and at Queen's is I like choose to take courses from Indigenous professors or on Indigenous issues in Canada because that's a topic that I'm interested in and I think is important to learn about but if she doesn't choose to do that and pick those courses on course selection day they're never going to hear these issues and have these issues that affect everyone everyone is involved in colonial colonization um they're never going to hear about these issues yeah and are these really Indigenous issues are they issues that belong to other people? Because my people not having land, that's not my issue. That's, that's like the government of Canada's issue. That's an issue for all Canadians to think about. But this isn't my issue. My, my family's, my um, father, he died of a heart attack due to complications of several heart complications um, related to a type two diabetes. He actually went to an Indian residential school and was part of the nutrition ex experiments. So physicians and nutritionists purposely testing to see if nutritional deficits and what they would do. They would measure how much hair was falling out, how much teeth were falling out, what their height was, what their skin was, what their weight was. Like that's the type of thing my father experienced. And that, how is that my issue? Mm -hmm. Has anything ever been done? What happened to all those obstetricians who are still forcibly and coercively sterilizing indigenous people in this country, which is an act of genocide. What are those OB's names? Why isn't the college, the Society of um, Obstetricians and Gynecologists, why aren't they putting out statements saying, this is disgusting? Why are those obstetricians still allowed to practice? That's not an indigenous issue. That's about the acceptability and disposability that non-indigenous people feel about indigenous people in this country. I have to live with that. You don't, and I'm not saying you particularly, but anyone who's listening, you don't have to live with this every day. Mm -hmm. You don't have to live with people, you know, a woman was murdered by, by this young white man in Thunder Bay making jokes and hitting her with a trailer hitch and she died. And everyone's saying, oh, he's just a young man. How about that white man who killed all those, those I believe eight Asian women in the States? 
oh, he was having a bad day. That's literally what the police officer said. Oh. What the fuck is going on? Like literally. Yeah. This is how anyone who's not white is so disposable mm-hmm. in, in white supremacy. We see it everywhere and we think, oh, it's not us. Are you sure? Mm-hmm. Are you sure it's not you? Because if you don't say anything, it's you. And that's what I am just, you know, fascinated by, I think, is learning about, you know, everything. It isn't an indigenous issue, like you said. Um, I think people are blinded and don't, um, you know, see it. It's not brought to our attention, but it's not supposed to be us and them. I think it's a collective you know, everyone is involved. Um, and kind of moving on to the next, to one question I had for you, and we talked a bit about last time, you know, how can we, how can, you know, even me as an individual help heal the relationship or, you know, work on this? And um, is it recognizing that it's my issue? Is it what, you know, vocabulary to use, or is it um, advocating for people? Is it, and you know, you talked about in small ways or in big ways, it's not always in big ways, but, you know, I think the one conversation we had about how saying, even just now say indigenous issues, is that wrong to say? Is that, um, you know, what vocabulary should I use? Even just speaking for me, even just, you know, queen student, what can I do better? Or what can, you know, QHO or, you know, because it's, yeah. Yeah. What can you do? And I think is learning about where you fit. Who are you? Like, literally, who are you? What do you believe in? Do you believe in everything? Like, I'm sorry, but I don't think that we should believe everything our parents teach us. Some of the stuff they teach us is wrong, yeah. or it's immoral, or it doesn't reflect the world that you want to live in. Some don't believe everything your professors teach you. Honestly, I, I feel like there's a song, and I, I told students once, maybe you were in the class, Annalise, uh, ask some questions. So what can you do? This is a good question. Okay, I'm going to put, everyone needs to listen to this song. It's by Pink Floyd another brick in the wall. This will make some people in the, in the listening audience laugh. But really think about who you are. How do you fit? Who are you making space for? And who do you believe and not believe? Right. Really examine what, whose issues are these? Where do I fit? Is this where I am supposed to be? Is this, is this my solution? Is this, should I be taking up space? Should, let's say someone were to, oh, here, the CBC is going to contact us three to talk about Indigenous um, health issues. Who do you recommend? They say, okay, Rosie, we're going to pay you $1,000. By the way, they don't pay you to do this. What do you do? And I think that you would, I would hope that you would say, this is not my place to talk about this. Um, give it to an, someone who's an indigenous person. And then Rita Chelly, for example, is gonna say, no, no, I wanna hear what a non-indigenous student at Queens thinks about it. Okay, well, that's great. Make sure I will only come on if you include blah, blah, blah. 
And then what do you do with that $1,000? I don't know your financial circumstances, but maybe you donate some of it to, or all of it to, um, I don't know, uh, Four Directions. I don't know, I'm making stuff up. Or to the First Nations Caring Society. But there are so many ways that we can do this. Do we, do we stand by and not say a word when we see racism and discrimination? Yeah. I know we see this. We see it in the grocery lineup. We see it at the stores when people are glaring at Asian-looking people because of this white supremacy that's becoming even more apparent in COVID. Mm -hmm. Do we stand? And it doesn't mean we have to, you know, beat everybody up, you know, like, oh, I won't have made a difference if I don't, if I don't, if I'm not very vocal. But what if literally you just stood between two people that like, let's say there was a really awful person and you stood in between them. Mm-hmm. what if you you just you know like there's so many ways like what if accidentally you dropped your keys right in between that conversation you know yeah. there's so many ways that we can do these interventions that may not get us a order of Canada but you know what they're gonna settle things down and give someone space the safe space they need I just think that we're much more we can be complicit by not doing anything, or we can actively engage all of our time. And it doesn't mean that it's everything we do, but just, and maybe it is. It, let's say the conversation, what do we do when we see a white mantle? A mantle is a, a panel on a topic and it's all white men. Mm-hmm. Literally, did you see that um, Government of Canada, their National Defense Department of National Defense set up a, a panel, a group of people, experts on EDII, and it was all white men. <laughs> what? That doesn't seem. And what's the rationale for that? Yeah. Yeah, maybe it's the role of white men to start doing this work and start giving up space and literally giving up space. Here's my seat. You sit there, right. um, or make more space. I don't know, but we need to do things all the time. Having a conference about it or a little one-off initiative. Yeah. That does nothing to change the system and the structures of white supremacy in every institution in this country. Right. Yeah. I, Which I, is why we need everyone. Yeah. No, I agree. And I think it's, it's a, I liked when you said making more space or people recognizing when we need, you know, um, to use our, I think recognize our own privilege and position of power and then say, do I want to perpetuate what's going what's already happening or do I want to be part of change or um you know just include everyone and um I think that's something that's good to think about I just definitely struggle with the almost okay I can't speak on these because I haven't experienced it but then also I want to be an advocate and I want to be actively engaged so that balance of I can't yeah what I mean and I find that can be tricky but I think and and you know yeah sorry that yeah Mm -hmm. but it's it's like you know what you're never going to get it right you're never going to get it perfect Mm -hmm. and you have all the time in the world but you can try yeah and and you know what I do think that we need to wait until things are absolutely perfect to try to make a difference you know, we're all learning circumstances are all different. There's different pressures. So you must be gentle with yourself. And I think that is also white supremacy. 
mm-hmm. this idea that there is a perfection mm-hmm. that this that we you know everything or nothing and it's like no we're on a path together yeah it doesn't mean that we take up each other's space but certainly help each other right and you know we can learn from each other and you're at university and I know um I think it was Annalise you said that you purposely take classes yes yes do that I mean but it is um why is it not a mandatory class for all university students to learn about Indigenous people whatever your work is you're going to be affecting and and if you're not positively working with Indigenous people, you're working against them. Because if you're working in the system, it is set up against Indigenous people and it's set up to maintain white supremacy. And I'm gonna, I'm never gonna stop saying this. And it's not about people, it's about a system. The system, the way this country is built is governance system. Look at the board of trustees at Queens. Who's leading it? Look at these questions. Do you see yourselves at Queens? Do you see yourselves in your professors? Do you see yourselves in, you know, the, the people that serve Queens, the, you know, the custodians, the caretakers, what is going on yeah. and what does, you know, and I do talk, talk about Queens because I'm part of Queens and as a Senator, I really do try to bring up and actively bring up, we need to keep doing more. And mm-hmm. even if it's not perfect, we have to start. Yeah. We're not the only ones. Mm-hmm. We're going to. We're all, a lot of us are old farts. I'm joking, you know, and our time is not here forever. So we have to keep making these spaces so that you, you are leaders, come take these spaces. You are welcomed. I will welcome you. And that's why I do these, these things with you. I want you to know your voice matters. I believe in you so much. You know, I appreciate that. And I, another point I was going to add to what you were saying is um, I think a lot of us are used to just being comfortable all the time. And I think it's like a great thing to be uncomfortable and to have conversations that make us, you know, a little bit uncomfortable for a minute. And then that's how you learn and grow. And um, that's when change happens. So I was gonna, like you said about making mistakes and not being perfect. And that's what I think it's also about is people being willing to have these uncomfortable conversations. I feel like that helps, but I I don't know. I I do. Yeah. This idea of comfort. Yeah. I think what, I think we've been taught incorrectly. How is it comfortable to walk by someone who's houseless, Mm -hmm. who doesn't have a house and is living on the street? How is it more comfortable to walk by than to give that person some money? Mm-hmm. What have we done that this is how we define our comfort and our selfishness? And I, I do think we're not teaching people enough to be caring and loving, but also the mechanisms to do it. Like, and why do you, why do people care? Like literally, why do you care what someone who's, you give someone $5 who's on the street, why do you care what they do with the money? Like, why are you regulating someone? And where is that love and kindness and compassion? Why can't we even look people in the eyes and say hello? Mm -hmm. Like, we have forgotten how to be human and how to convey our humanity in daily. I know it's exhausting. And that's why, you know, I think we're all doing the best we can. And I don't ever want to be mean, but I just want to be encouraging. Like, if you you feel drawn to working um, as a, 
don't know, chemical engineer and doing good things and good ways for um, Indigenous peoples, you're going to find a way. My son wants to be a chemistry professor. He's absolutely brilliant. Um, yeah. And you know what? Wouldn't it be nice for chemistry students to see an Indigenous chemistry professor? Yeah, for sure. Well, and I just, that's why I need you. I, and I, I can't say this enough. You are enough. The person you are is enough. Mm -hmm. You know in your heart, and I just hope that as adult, you know, as adults in quotations, as people older than you, that we're giving you enough space and um, teaching so that you can do the work that you want to do. Mm -hmm. I'm really emotional about this because I just can't, I wish that, again, because we're in the pandemic and we can't sit in person, you might not um, believe how much I care for students. But being away from you is so very hard. Yeah. It's not fun for me either. And and not being able to get to know students in the same way mm -hmm. is so very hard. And I know it's very hard on students and every professor is different. And mm -hmm. I just always want to support you all doing the good work that I think you want to do. Mm -hmm. No, I'm sure it, it must be just as hard for professors as it is for students. And it's too bad we can't have connection in person. Um, yeah. But I'm grateful for at least technologies today yeah. is allowing us to have somewhat of a connection, but definitely not the same. I agree. Yeah. Um, I think we've touched a bit about, about how to empower others, but maybe in just a, a couple sentences, how do you think that someone could empower themselves or other people? and what that means to you um, and what do you think? It's a good question because it's kind of an action one. And if I think of empowerment, and literally I'm just thinking of it now because of the way you raise the question, is I'm thinking about oppression mm -hmm. and how exclusion, what are the ways that we exclude and oppress people in, in, our, in our country, Canada? And I think there's so many ways, there's, the list could never end, but what is empowerment? And I think it's about creating a space and those who have power can actually then give up power or and create space or share that power. Um, one of the things I would love to see, and this is the way, and I didn't, I have given it quite a bit of thought is how can we co-share? How can we co-develop our work? And how can we offer choice that will um, allow in, for example, for students to feel that they have, they're empowered to make decisions about assignments. And I know that's not always the same across all disciplines, like certain understandings of say math, they're pretty, you know, you have to learn these parts. Yeah. But all the deadlines, do they have to exist? And again, maybe in some um, topics they do because they build on each other. But it's this idea of choice. And I don't mean this, this perception of choice, but actually having a choice. And I think that it helps to, to, for students to, or people to have their own empowerment. I can't give you, I can't empower you, but I can facilitate circumstances right. that will give you, the, that you can then empower yourself to um, be who you are. And I think that, um, I mean, as a professor, as, as I have quite a bit of flexibility because of um, the way that I teach and in some ways because of the online learning my classes don't have deadlines like my assignments the only deadline is the last day of the semester 
April 9th. Who is ever listening is in my class. April 9th is the only deadline. And that was to give students flexibility. Like I gave a timeline of when I think students should have things in, but I don't take off late marks. Yeah. And I, I don't know, it's something I'm re really thinking about. And it, yeah. I don't know if it's the best thing, especially for some people who have never had opportunities to feel empowered to make their own decisions. Mm -hmm. But again, it's, it's learning. We're here to learn. Yeah. I don't know. It's really, I mean, I, and this again, I would look to people who could tell me, what can I do as a professor to help you feel empowered as a student? And that's where those student evaluations come in. I actually read every one. What can I make better? And then I go find help. But, but again, that's, that's just one example. Yeah. I think that actually ties very nicely um, back into what you were saying about comfort. Because when I think about comfort, when I think of somebody with privilege, even just like academic privilege, socioeconomic privilege, um, privilege because of my race, I have a sense of comfort that's like innately given to me just by the way I am in my positionality. And I can ask myself and look within and ask, how can I ensure that the other people around me are feeling that same level of comfort, whether that's them interacting um, with the healthcare system or with their own education, or how can I ensure that comfort for other people and that sense of agency and yeah. empowerment? Yeah. Yeah. Like it's, it's yeah. It's, and also, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. I'll keep going. I was going to say, like, there's the, legal and the constitution system things that need to change to provide room and that needs to happen which is super important but also like Annalise was saying like just the you know providing space and opportunity and not having any preconception like notions about people and coming in with an open mind and providing the space and opportunity for anybody with this to have the same opportunity it's kind of both the like system and then also just the mindset like people's everyone's mindset about okay I think we just everyone should have the same opportunities and that can be taken away by um prejudice and um stereotypes and things like that are you know just ingrained um but Kind of, those, I think it, it sounds from what I'm hearing, it empowerment must come, almost must come within yourself, but there needs to be the space to do so and the opportunity to do so. That's what I, I'm hearing. That's what I think. I think so. And again, this is what I'm thinking now. And it is only with other conversations with people that I can actually, you know, further refine. And so I think that the talking about it and questioning is, is like how, and what does that mean within a, you know, there's, we just need to keep having conversations. And that's why I think we need each other because yeah. this is how we refine our understandings of inclusion and um, ensuring all of us have a, a chance and opportunity mm -hmm. to really be present in our world. If, as a, you know, as an indigenous woman, can I really ever be present in a world that's, in, that is grounded and founded in white supremacy. I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Yeah, no, that's super important to recognize, but um, it's a great conversation. And I think I have one last question. And, um, you know, I think myself and maybe other people listening are interested to hear about your experience working as a midwife and 
you know, if you wanted to talk about some lessons you learned or a story or like a certain experience that you, um, um, I would love to. I, it was like, I love being at birth. I love providing prenatal care and postpartum care. Mm-hmm. And I just love helping facilitate decision-making that is suitable for the person who's receiving care. And that's a part of midwifery care. And, you know, people are going to ask me, you know, what's your favorite hospital or home birth? I love home birth, but I know that that re- re- is a certain set of clinical circumstances that not everyone gets to have and it's out of their hands. And I just, I love birth. I loved working um, in the hospital and, you know, informing people about how the hospital runs and the obstetric unit. I, I love it so much. And I do miss it um, very much and problem solving together when, you know, situations change in a pregnancy or labor. And it is such a, an honor to have been a midwife practicing. And, and I still hold that, that midwifery training and experiences very close to my heart. Um, it, it's beautiful. People are so beautiful, beautiful. And I, yeah, it's a time of... Um, going into your yourself and becoming a person that you didn't know you could be. And it doesn't matter if you're, you know, at a home birth or or someone has an epidural. It's, it's a very huge amount of of change and energy. I think that, and I think that if we create an environment in which they can feel their themselves going through these changes without shame, it, it can be such a beautiful process. Yeah, you have some amazing life experiences to draw on. So um, thank you so much for sharing everything with me. I'm sure this whole conversation was um, tiring and can be emotional. And I just really appreciate you taking the time and energy to do this. And I know you keep saying it's you love students, but um, students yeah. appreciate you and also are really grateful that we have you to hear from, learn from, and look up to. And I just wanted to say that. So um, we appreciate your presence as much as you appreciate ours. So um, thank you so much. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. It's just so wonderful to spend some time with you both.